When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, my guest is Dr. Brian Pavlak. Brian is a medieval historian. You can check out his book, Game of Thrones vs. History Written Blood. Then, of course, Steve and I cover the most consequential slap in television history. That's right. I'm talking about episode 8 of season 6, wherein Podrick gets slapped by Braun. Without further ado, here is Professor Brian Pavlak. And I've forgotten, and we're doing for this, I've forgotten that Littlefinger started it all yeah, by poisoning right. and killing John Aaron. Well, that all right, so that's everything yeah, rolling. And, yeah. and I'd forgotten that entirely how he and Lisa Aaron had conspired to kill her husband. And right. that started the whole chain of events that, that, led to the war against Stark against Lannister. Again, that's her, you know, that's her little confession, right? From yes. her perspective, mm-hmm. Littlefinger was the prime motivator. And I totally believe that Littlefinger was certainly part of it. Although, I don't think that that negates the... I think that the, Littlefinger often will have several moving parts oh, to yes. these kinds of plans. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like, it doesn't mean that there weren't other folks involved. Mm-hmm. For instance, like King Robert has just died in the portion that we're looking at, right? Right. So, I mean, who killed King Robert? Well, there's multiple answers to that, you know. And, and his own personal responsibility. King yeah, Robert he is a killed bad himself. King. He's a bad king and a bad yeah. husband, right? Right. He's a bad king because he devotes himself too much to drink and hunting when he should uh-huh. be ruling. He's, too, he's yeah. trying to bump it off. He bumped it off on John Aaron. Now he's trying to bump it off on Ned Stark. Right. And he's a bad husband. Sure. Uh, just a few things, you know. Cersei is, you know, pleads for him to become a better husband, basically, and he just refuses. Hmm. And so Cersei's, you know, key leading into this chapter two is her confession to Ned Stark about everything. So everything he suspected was true. Yeah. Although his, his you know, his bi- bi- genetics biology that the blood runs true and every child should be blonde, from a Lannister and dark haired from a Baratheon, a little silly. You know, sometimes genetics break through and, you know, yeah, it is minor silly. genes crop up. It's, it's a really That's silly right. point that Martin tries to make here. But it's it works in the story if every character in the story right. and is whether, convinced, yes. would be convinced by that logic. right? And whether or not Cersei confesses to Ned Stark and lays out everything right to his face. So we don't have mm-hmm. to be suspect, suspect anymore. She admits it openly. Mm-hmm. And somehow she thinks that will... Well, sometimes Ned thinks he can take advantage of her with that. And of course, that leads to the tragedy. But Sure. Brian, I'm going to read a synopsis of this chapter. Okay. And then we can talk about about it. Mm -hmm. 
All right, here's my synopsis. Sansa waits in the throne room for Joffrey's first enthroned day at court. Janna Slint is granted a lordship and the landholdings of Harrenhal. Then, after Barrison Selmy is forced into retirement, the old knight insults the king, insults the remaining king's guard, removes his cloak, armor, and sword. Joffrey demands that uh, Barristan be followed, arrested, and questioned. Then Joffrey demands oaths of fealty from several lords and ladies who are not present. Then lastly, Sansa pleads with the king to spare her father's life. Joffrey agrees to show Eddard mercy, but he must declare Joffrey the true king and confess his supposed treason. So, Brian Pavlak, what do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or shall you and I just climb the ladder of chaos? Well, I, th- I thought of a number of things I could talk about, it's starting with the point of the whole idea of a court. Yeah. In fact, that's what I was thinking when I was looking at this sort of grouping of chapters. Mm-hmm. I thought, this is... We don't see a court setting like this often in this book. No. We've seen it once before with Ned, but we don't see Robert uh, doing much mm-hmm. <laughs> from court. That's a bad thing. Uh, so, so this is an interesting little window into Martin's world that we haven't seen a lot. All is there by inference. Like one of the first things Sansa says is she was used to hundreds of people being in Robert's yeah, court. But there's right. only a handful at Joffrey's first court. That's right. And, and you know, one of the things I studied, you know, in the Middle Ages, again, how government works and how state works. And, and you know, so the Game of Thrones, like Lord of the Rings, you know, they're sort of imaginary forms of government, which have, you know, some some inklings of reality and how sure. governments formed over time. But that's one of the great accomplishments of the Middle Ages is how they're able to reconstruct governments after the collapse of the Roman Empire. And the governments are reconstructed out of the personal rule of powerful men, and rarely a powerful woman, but mostly powerful men, who just are that their power, their charisma, their ability to command and, and have loyalty of people who will kill for them. Out of those, that primitive sense of rule, sure. come elaborate, complicated governments that are the direct ancestors of our own. And the, the court idea, I mean, that word court has a double meaning, of course. Here it's used as King Joffrey gaining, gathering all the people who should obey him and sort of creating bonds between him and them. And of course, there's the courts of justice, which we also see very little of Game of Thrones. I can only right. think off the top of my head, t- t- uh, Tyrion's trial, which was a kangaroo court. Um, yeah, we see a couple kangaroo courts with Tyrion. Yeah. You know, so but you're right. It's it's we we do not see in in this particular narrative uh, the court function in that way as often. Mm-hmm. And that the dominant theme of this court is the line: um, "The king's duty to punish the disloyal and reward those who are true." And I think that that's a great theme for what is trying to be accomplished here. And of course, at which they're gonna fail miserably, which sure. leads to the complication and the, the, the viciousness of the Game of Thrones. Um, the War of the Thrones, the war over all this stuff. War yeah. is plural uh, because uh, King's duty 
punishes disloyalty too much and rewards people who are untrue and awful. Uh, and that starts just right in this court. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, it's interesting that it has that sort of veneer of the king's duty, right? Mm-hmm. So jo- Joffrey mm-hmm. makes that po- proclamation. You know, it's a king's duty to oversee the, the justice of people or something like that. And then what happens directly after that, you just see his corruption and nepotism and favoritism on full display. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like Sansa is witnessing how the sausage is really made. You know, <laughs> you know she's been reading books about knights. And, oh, she is know. such, you know, a sweet summer child, as the saying yeah. goes, right? She, she just <laughs> doesn't know what's what, just... But she starts to, and again, that's one of the reviews I read of this chapter, just to her, her seriousness at the end in the, in, the, in the series, the way she's captured, just poised there on her knees, so serious and so genuine. Yeah. There is that element of the future Sansa we'll see develop more and more. Um, but in the, the book, her thoughts are still so naive and silly and foolish. Yeah, she's and desperate. Dangerous. Oh, she's just desperately wants to believe that. Cersei loves her, that Joffrey loves her, that they're and, going to see her plea. And and she's and, the cause yeah. of it all. And I, I'd forgotten. You know, she goes, when, when Ned mm-hmm. won't let her stay in King's Landing, she goes to Cersei and spills the beans. Yeah, it, so that's that how absolutely. So that's how they're able to capture Ned and, and unawares yeah. and, and ruin his attempted coup. Yeah, uh, and that's not does really that. brought out in, yeah, that's not really brought out on the show. No, it, it's not. It's you get you get the sense from Sansa's interior thoughts mm-hmm. that Cersei would have been at a disadvantage uh, because Ned actually has this surprise that he can spring on them. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got this document that that Robert has signed. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever you think of Ned, Ned actually did actually have the advantage. And then what ends up happening is that Sansa goes and tells on him, right. basically, right. to Cersei and gives her the advantage. Now, right. she has the element of surprise. And she can install Joffrey and demand oaths of fealty before Ned can get out of bed, basically. Right. And if that hadn't happened, he Renly maybe would have stayed. So, again, I think Renly mm. was just found out what was happening and got out of town as quick as he could. Right. And Littlefinger was playing his game. He could have gone to Ned, but Littlefinger just saw that Ned was stubbornly honorable. <laughs> and, well, and, so and yeah, who, what horse are you going to back? Go the wrong way. So, so That's right. If, it, if the City Watch and Renly had been there, uh-huh. Ned would have succeeded. The other thing about this chapter that I thought was interesting is sort of the oaths of fealty. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking, like, this is actually a pretty clumsy way to run a country <laughs> well i was rather annoyed at it so so and yeah tell me tell me why you were annoyed. what should happen when a new king comes to power in the middle ages uh-huh. of course he would demand as much as he could fealty from whomever he could get uh-huh. now the oaths of fealty varied in detail according to what they promised and we don't hear any of these oaths of fealty really we have the night guard and their promise but that's or the king's guard and the king's guard is, is unique but um generally the oath Fealty means fidelity, means faithfulness, and you're going to uh-huh. be true and loyal to someone. 
And maybe you'll promise to be that person's man, that's homage, be a person's, have a direct personal bond, sort of like father and son or brother to brother. And you're going to have to do service, hospitality, and military service, and these kind of things. You promise these things. Now, this all developed, as I said, from the strongman rule after the fall of the Roman Empire to create this often called the system of feudalism. I tell my students, don't use feudalism. It, says, it seems it makes it too much of a real concrete idea. Mm-hmm. But feudal relationships based sure. on feats and promises, personal promises. And in a sense, personal promises are what all government and society is based on. We promise to obey the law. Mm. We promise to pay our taxes. We promise not to murder our mothers in their sleep. We promise all sorts of things. Yeah, we promise not and to then, lie under oath. Exactly. Give false and then testimony. We do it. And, and that's the choice between good and evil is keeping our promises mm-hmm. that are good. And Even like driving evil. on the right side of the road. Yes. It's like or not you're making we're making an implicit promise mm-hmm. to the oncoming traffic that we are not going to swerve the steering right. wheel. That's often an argument against libertarians I see in memes online. Yeah, I'm going to drive wherever and however I want as a libertarian who can do what I want. Uh, but society would fall apart if we did that. Uh, so well, you, okay, so your point is that the you know that that all all governments are built in at least in part or in large part. On just this general feeling of integral relationships, and yes. so you want to keep you want to keep the integrity intact. Yes, and that's where clearly things start to go wrong, because I, I was looking for we don't have a coronation for Joffrey, do we? I, I clearly couldn't find one. We oh, don't see it. Okay, no, so, we we absolutely don't see it. So that is where many of these promises would be made. Now, remember when he when he confronts Stark. Um, him and his you know, men and the King's Guard and all that. Sure. Um, he says, I'm demanding fealty from my chief people today after the king has died. And he wants Ned Stark's promise then. And Ned Stark, of course, says, you're not king and all that. Uh-huh. That's unusual. Again, things would usually be promised at a ceremony that, again, like this court, many people would attend. And to issue this document, this decree that they would become alleged traitors unless they swear their fealty to Joffrey is so would not have been done in the middle ages because have they been given a chance and basically he's creating an enemies list, right? Everybody in that list is a suspected or actual by this point, like Renly enemy. They're Mm. not going to be loyal. So he's created an enemies list instead of giving people a chance to swear fealty. And yeah, he's come up with a list of people who are not there. Right. Right. Did they get the invitation in time? You know, how much lead did we have? And of course, these are courts are courts even before or with a coronation are elaborate parties like we see at mm-hmm. his wedding. Now, that is more typical. We would have you know, some ceremonies and a big feast and jousting and gesturing like at his wedding. Um, there's none of that here. We just have this short little scene. It's very short in the, yeah. the show. And there's one little chapter that where he's doing these several things that you mentioned. And the first, again, is reading this list of bad guys who are going to be demanded to swear fealty. But of course, everyone should yeah. know they have to swear fealty. That is the, the, right. the written and unwritten obligation of vassals. Now, we don't use those terms in Game of Thrones book, but the concept is there with bannermen and all of these that people mm-hmm. are swearing these oaths of allegiance to each other all the time. So, of course, people are going to come to Joffrey and swear an oath. 
unless they're a rebel, which again, Ned basically declares, and that's why he winds up, you know, in the right. dungeon and soon otherwise. Um, it's to be expected. So he, he's starting off on a bad foot, alienating people he doesn't need to alienate. Well, I think that the, all right, try this on for size, Brian. I think that in the story, this basically functions to rubber stamp as sort of enemy to the crown, people who are already enemies to the crown. They don't know so, that for sure, though. Well, it, it very well may be the case, but, you know, someone like Renly, someone like Stannis, uh, the, the, you know, the Starks and the people who are loyal to the Starks, mm-hmm. uh, the people who... But, but somebody um, like Lord these folks, Walter Frey or the Dorn yeah, Martell. Sure. The, Dor- the Martells are always a problem, but are they necessarily going to defy them right. in this case? We sure. don't know. As I said, he's, he's, he's picking and choosing who he suspects with reasonable suspicion, I would say. Yes. Right. But I he's think making that, yeah. it clear that he doesn't like them. And again, I also want to say we're reading too much into Joffrey because the next page is my book. is an interesting part about how this is being done. I love this line here. That so the king has decreed and the small council consents, and then a second time, and then a third time. Sure, the king has huh. decreed and the small council consents. And this is an interesting twist that George Martin has introduced into this. These kings are not absolute, right? Their will but... is not alone and by itself. And that's a common misconception of many people about kings they can do whatever they want. Kings are limited by law and custom. And especially in the Middle Ages, law and custom was better when it was old and very fragile when it was new. Huh. And so that this small council is clearly a check on royal power, especially something new. He needs some agreement of the people. Now, out of this kind of concept eventually evolves parliament and representative government like we have today. Kings, in addition to that, Joffrey's young, right? And he needs the regents, right? And that's why and I, I noted this. Take over that. I had never seen this before, but I noticed that Cersei, when she is being introduced, she's introduced as protector of the realm. Mm-hmm. And I did not remember that she had that title, whether it's honorific or not. Um, well, it's common for Richard III took on that title before he became Richard III, when he was still Duke of Gloucester. He was also right, so protector of the realm and guardian right. of the king. Yeah, Cersei has arranged this so that she has power. She's she's put herself on the small council that you know mm-hmm. people murmur over that. Murmur, murmur, murmur. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Muttering. And, then, and I think that she has this illusion that she's come out on top. Mm-hmm. Because she thinks she can control Joffrey. Well, and that's everybody's false understanding at this moment, which nobody is clear in this chapter. And it doesn't happen, of course, until the next chapters, that they cannot control Joffrey. Right. Sort of like the the, the people who put Hitler in power thought they could control Hitler until Hitler started to show that he could not be controlled. And That's Joffrey, I was just reading, I was just watching a, a Netflix movie yeah. last night called Munich on the Edge Oh, of I have yet to see it. Is it worth watching? It's a little fast and loose with a few historical oh, yeah, details, okay, okay. but I enjoyed it. And, and it's exactly on what you're list, talking so. about. It's mm-hmm. these early politicians who think, yeah, of course, Hitler's a racist, but we can kind of put that to the side. That's not going to be the 
determinative force of his leadership or he's he just wants to get back the, the you know the the borders the original borders of yeah. germany he's not Build actually up the gonna, army. it's very similar to the joffrey thing it's like okay we know joffrey is not the best person well and but, his, his fundamental problem is and people don't see it yet is he's a sadist he's a sadist he wants blood he he actually wants want, he, he wants to see sansa suffer we find that yes. out in the next sansa oh. chapter he absolutely like what he really wants in life is to see her face screwed up in grief. And that, that's going to give him a thrill like nothing else. Well, not just hers, everybody's. He wants everybody. That's to true. Suffer. I think he even wants his mother to suffer. Um, and particularly because he, he disobeys her. And then that's what start, you know, that's what leads to what happened. You know, Ned's supposed to plead guilty and, you know, he'll, he'll, of course, join the Black Watch, which is a marvelous invention of Martin's, this Black Watch, you know, which feeds into this whole other plot, of course, of, of the North. Right. Yeah, but yeah. this marvelous invention for someone, you know, like has already happened to Jon Snow in the book, for someone to, to commit a crime, yet not be killed. And it's, again, because Joffrey, I don't know if he really, you know, he says he'll grant mercy. Of course, his idea of mercy is Ned not being tortured to death. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is Mercy is a she, quick. Yeah. She said, yeah. "I'm not going to marry you. You you took my father's head, and you you said you were going to give him mercy." And and yeah. Joffrey responds, "He's like, well, I I, I could have had him flayed. Yeah, exactly. Flayed. Yes, exactly. I, I gave him a nice clean flayed. death. Yeah. What else do you want from me?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and of course, he surprises everybody with that. Right. Everybody. Uh-huh. You know, Varys is running around. His yes. mother is astonished. Yes. So he shows he cannot be controlled with that one act. Uh-huh. And he is uncontrollable after that. And there's yes, and I think that that bleeds into the chapter that we're looking at. This I think I feel like this chapter really shows Joffrey's insecurity on full display, right? Oh yes, he he's worried that there are people running around out there that are saying that he's not the true king. Mm-hmm. And he finds this very threatening. You know, he he has people chase down Barrison Selmy, mm-hmm. uh, be, you know, because of what Barrison Selmy says about Stannis taking the throne. And then when he demands these oaths of fealty, he is, it's almost like he is, he needs to hear it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he mm-hmm. he wants to hear it with his own ears, and he's he asks Sansa. He says, "Why did your father say I wasn't king? Why did he say that?" He's very much a teenage boy who's very insecure. Oh, he is a boy, and he is a coward. And, he, right? and that's what we boy, see later too. He's a coward. exactly. He does he's not have the strength to do anything himself when he is right. being a bully. And, and because and of that, he's going to make this severe show of strength mm-hmm. so that he can actually demonstrate his power because yes. he's trying to even convince himself that he has power. Oh, absolutely. So I think that this is actually, th- this shadow, this, this chapter really foreshadows nicely what he does with Ned eventually. Um, because out of this deep insecurity, of course he's going to lash out and demonstrate that, Oh, he really is King, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, independent of his mother, independent of the small council, which again violates, as I said, he does not have absolute authority. Because this is a tendency a lot of kings want to have is to create absolute, and many of them succeed. They say, I'm not going to have councils anymore. I'm not going to call parliament anymore. I'm going to do this. 
And sometimes it works, like in France, until the French Revolution. Uh, sometimes it doesn't in England, who they again start taking power away from the king. Right. Uh, or in America, we just reject kingship entirely. So um, he this this kingship idea, as I said, it, people often think, yeah, kings can do what they want, but no, kings cannot. They're often limited. And mm -hmm. this, again, the small council decrees. But Joffrey as king is able to grant mercy, just like presidents can pardon now. And they, and again, this is also, you know, Varys and Cersei are, are, are in on this. You know, they're talking to Ned in the dungeon about this. You know, we're going to put you on the Black Watch. Everything will be yeah, cool. Yeah, that's right. And because he's executed, the war is certain. If he had put, if Ned had been put on the Black Watch, I don't know how much of a rebellion Rob Stark could have pulled off. I don't think so. I think you're I, I don't probably think it right could have at all. That. I think it would have collapsed. Yeah. People have said, he did deny the king. We're all going with this king. We can't go back now. What are you doing mm -hmm. raising a rebellion? Your father is alive. He admitted he was wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, Joffrey ruins all that. So that's and, right. and okay. another thing that that's set up as part of Joffrey's, or that the council, you know, let's come back to Sir Selmy Barristan, uh, his rejection, you know, it also creates a deadly enemy. But that's not Joffrey's fault. That's Cersei's fault. It is. And then, you know, it's I think it's in many ways, it, this is one of those times when if Salmi had been allowed to just say his piece, mm -hmm. he might have just sort of, you know, stomped off into obscurity and, and just, <laughs> you know, sort of licked his wounds and then, you know, whatever. I But the fact that he was humiliated yes. at the end. I think that for someone for whom honor is paramount, mm -hmm. Littlefinger says, "Yeah, it looks like uh, you're going to be a naked knight." Yeah. Uh, you know, he says, "I'm going to be a knight till I, the day that I die." He says, "Well, apparently a naked knight," and everyone laughs. In fact, even the king's guard who had served under him laughed. And Sansa notes that must have hurt more than anything because Sansa knows this. Mm -hmm. I mean, if Sansa is sort of naive in many ways, but she understands. The courts, like yeah. she understands, she has a courtliness. Court, the whole court, yeah, she understands attitude and socialization courtesy. that happens in courts. Courtesy, right? yes, exactly. She understands courtesy, and she can see. Okay, that was the thing. That was that little jibe by you know that little poke by Littlefinger. That probably hurt the worst. And of course, you see when he leaves, he is absolutely menacing when he leaves. So much so that the Joffrey is probably right to be afraid of him at this point. Mm -hmm. I do want to talk about. Well, Barristan I also want to add about, add about Selmy. That, that okay. He again, this should have been done in private, not in a huge public ceremony, right? That was the humiliating part of it. But also, it doesn't make sense for a king's guard to live until he dies. Because, no, it because <laughs> yeah, in ten years, Selmy would be old and decrepit. Now again, uh, Selmy goes on, of course, to be key enemy. Well, that's why we need a war every he, thirty and he, years, and he, Brian. And he fights well, <laughs> and and until he does die at a certain point, you're overwhelmed by enemies. But still, um, that's that's a silly concept. And of course, it's this Kingsguard too is an imaginary thing created by Martin. It doesn't really exist much in uh, history. You know, they're occasionally royal bodyguards like the Viking Varangians and the Byzantine court and things like that. But this uh -huh. concept of a special, special knight swearing a special, special oath, which we see. Yeah. And then there's this Kingsguard that are structured so that, you know, Jamie Lannister is allowed to stay. Barrister puts up with that. And then these five other men who surround and kill the 
tutor of Arya. Oh my gosh, these are brutal, horrible monsters. Yeah. How are they some sort of honorable knights that Beresty has been serving with all these years? I don't understand how that happened. And for him to pretend somehow that he's still noble and untouched by well, this. Well, we see that. I mean, this, uh, this, I think Sansa is seeing that in this. She's like, she's actually, she's got this idea of knighthood, right? Yes. And it's very, very naive. And mm-hmm. I think in this chapter, we see very clearly this is all very political, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we see very clearly here that Barristan Selmy has a very low view of Jamie Lannister. Yes. And yet, why is he on the Kingsguard? It's political. It's absolutely political. political that he's on the Kingsguard. Although I'll also say, I never understood why Jamie Lannister didn't tell the story he had to tell about the Mad King more. I don't know why he didn't do that. I've never understood that. I think he believes what his father's been preaching all these years, that that the lion is not concerned with the opinion of the sheep. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that Jamie, yeah. for instance, is someone who thinks, what's what's going to be gained? No one's no one's going to f- ever feel sorry for me. I did it. And Brienne who cares about the narrative? <laughs> They've already made up their mind. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe your point is is a good one that things could have gone easier for Jamie had he told that story. But I also think that Jamie's not the kind of person who really wants the easy, easy path. No, he wants to make it hard on himself. He clearly does. He makes it hard on himself. <laughs> he does. Uh, all right, I want to ask you about Barristan Zalmi. All right, so mm-hmm. here's what happens with him. Mm-hmm. He's on this hunt with Robert. Mm-hmm. Robert is drunk, so drunk that he's reeling in his saddle. Yeah. He commands everyone to stand aside so he can take on the boar by himself. Yes. And... Selmy feels really guilty about the fact that he allowed his king to do this because, you know, it's his job to keep the king alive, basically. But against the boar? Yeah, no, I he, or against himself. It's like, is it really his job to keep the king sober enough so that he's not gored through? Right. You know, Joffrey's jibe that, that you know, Selmy allowed the king to, to die. Well, the king was getting drunk. Now, of course, we now know the wine was fortified and made him drunker uh-huh. than he should have. Yeah. And again, a boar is a deadly animal. People have been killed in boar attacks. Right. Well, somebody, I think, just died because he was bitten by a boar. I think I read that in the news. Right. Um, and how is Selmy supposed to protect the king against an animal? He's supposed to protect the king against people. Monsters. Yeah, I could see, but I could see I that. I do was, think well, that I, I thought it was very unfair of them to blame, and even Selmy shouldn't be blaming himself. It was all right. So it reminded me of much earlier in the book. Mm-hmm. The show does this differently, but much earlier in the book, the king wants to fight in the melee. Robert mm, wants to fight yes. in the melee, yeah. and he's going to do it. And the, I think a lot of the reason why he's going to do it is that everyone's telling them he shouldn't do it, right? And he doesn't like being told what to do. Right. And it's in the show, it's Ned, but in the in the book, it's Selmy. Selmy says. No one's going to give you a fair fight. No one's going to be the person who accidentally killed the king. Mm-hmm. They're all going to let you win. And that's what convinces Robert not to do something that would be dangerous to himself. Right. So in other words, Barristan Selmy has kind of taken upon himself to, at times, try to protect the king from his own worst inclinations. Mm-hmm. So, And he's been pretty successful so far. <laughs> And then this thing happens with the boar, 
and now he's really broken up about it. And he actually tells Ned, he says, I, I, I don't know what I could have, you know, I, I, it, it's my fault. You know, he, he's blaming himself. And I wonder if, I wonder if Joffrey and Cersei have a point in that he's pretty much too old to be a knight anymore. He's not he's not good at helping the king. He's not good at protecting the king anymore. He let the king die simply because he was off his game and that happens when you get older. I would say again also considering look what he managed to serve very well under da- Daenerys. But I would say against politics. They know what's kind of a noble upstanding person he is. Mm-hmm. And they just want him out of the way and put someone they can manipulate and be in control of in his place. Well, they 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 want to put Jamie. I think Cersei Well, no, Jamie Yeah. Cersei Cersei wants Jamie to be the, you know, the the head of this organization. Right. Which is somebody they know and they can control and they can That's be right. trusted and such like that, you know, and, and Janos Flint elevated into a to a lord. That's right. Uh, or a Slint. Um and but that's what I think is the key thing. They know they can't manipulate uh, him. Like he did, he almost, you know, and this is again where I think he should feel guilty about, he did not protect Ned Stark as the hand. He let Ned Stark be surrounded and captured. Um, sure. And he doesn't have any regrets about that. And the hand of the king, but again, the hand is also another interesting concept of the court. The idea of this hand, sort of a viceroy, a vice monarch, you know, developed in the course of the Middle Ages to represent the king when the king wasn't there. And it's an important government step that the king didn't have to do everything himself. Mm. And in the and Martin turns this into a very important office, especially that as you know, Baratheon takes part, uh, takes advantage of it so that he could be the you know, drunken boar hunting guy he wants to be and leave all the hard work to first John Heron and then Ned Stark. Um, the king didn't necessarily need a hand except to represent him when the king was so busy. And that's something we don't see much of how kingship really works in this book, except in this time of crisis and a civil war develops and all these sub-kings and sub-lords of their own kingdoms, you know, heptarchy, as the kingdoms sort of revive themselves, we see kingship very limited and often just very focused in on the necessities of winning this war. And we don't see kings really become act as kings very much. Well, because it is a time of war. Yeah. Um, I there's one little thing. There's one little passage I wanted to read because we were talking about the function of what the king is supposed to do, right? Mm-hmm. This chapter begins with this paragraph. It says the walls of the throne room had been stripped bare, the hunting tapestries that King Robert loved taken down and stacked in the corner in an untidy heap. And I just thought mm-hmm. that it's such a wonderful image of Robert's legacy. It's like, what did you do as king? Well, I mean, you hunted. <laughs> you hunted and, and amassed these hunting trophies, and they're worthless. They're sitting in the corner in a heap. And what and, and truly what happened was that Cersei was grooming the next king right under your nose. Well, and she's also setting herself apart from her previous king because she dated him, right? Right. So, so it's also the... And she hasn't had time to, again, invite the 
the new interior decorator. Because, <laughs> sure. yeah, no. as I said, courts are supposed to be about presentation. And exactly. They're supposed to be interesting, powerful affairs that impress people. Uh-huh. And a bunch of the old, you know, stag banners on the ground isn't going to impress anyone unless they bring up the new Lannister ones. So it was clearly a, a rushed affair, which they needed to do. You need to establish power pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, so that, and then that's what they start to do. But as I said, they make several mistakes because they clearly create enemies right. for themselves in doing this. So, Brian, notable introductions. We meet the Red Wine Twins, Horror and Slobber. <laughs> Lovely names. Um, we meet, for the very first time, Drunken Lord Dantos mm-hmm. um, from Sansa's perspective. And we hear the first mention of Dorne Martell. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Now, Horror and Slobber, this seems that's got to be an homage to some other literary work. I, I mean, I don't know if it's like like Martin is nodding to Cujo from Stephen King's uh, catalog or something, but he he will do those from time to time. I, I'd be curious to know where the names horror and slobber came from. Um, <laughs> yeah. I have no answer except that they create visual images. Yes, uh, certainly. Uh, notable show difference. I felt like this is pretty well represented on the screen, this particular chapter. I think that the one difference that I noted is that uh, Selmy's speech is a little bit shorter mm-hmm. on the screen. Oh. And that could have just his, been uh, for economy. His right? helmet is much more elaborate, and his armor somehow is oh, fed good. off more in the book than, than in the show. Okay, I missed that. And also, I, I did in my background reading, George Martin wrote this episode for the series. Oh, this particular episode is the first one he wrote. Of course, he's been a producer, but this is the first one he wrote. And of course, he got raised for it because even though this chapter is, you know, like five minutes long. Right. But but the whole episode is just a great outstanding episode that just sets up so much in a very clear and exciting way. And it's just full of fire and and blood. And uh, um, sure. So it's it's, now which episode is this? He still remembered. Uh, Is this the uh, Baylor season two? Season one. Oh, it's the uh, season, season one two. ends with Ed's execution spoiler. But uh, so, so this is um... no, no, no. Season Ned's execution is the penultimate episode, I think, of season oh, one. But, so this yeah. must be Ned actually is executed after this particular. Yeah. This is the pointy end is the name. The eighth episode. Yeah, yeah. Right, he's right, executed right. in the okay. ninth. Okay, good. Thank you. And I, I so was the pointy mistaken. end, uh, named you know after the, the pointy end of of. Uh, Arya's sword. You know the episode right. begins with her training with her her, her tutor. Great scene and uh, yeah, what a memorable episode for sure. Yeah. And then notable departures. Uh, well, I guess we could say that Selmy's tenure in the Kingsguard has come to an end, and then we actually see him depart from the scene. And I, I think, if I remember correctly, they try to track him down and they can't find him. Like he's eluded. Yeah, I couldn't. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't find out exactly where and how he got. To where he was going um sure but yeah they're, they're incompetent <laughs> yeah Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. 
Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now Steve and I cover no one. Tom and Outlaws, Trial by Combat. The Hound Gets Vengeance. Arya announces that she's going home. Just a word on this. Steve and I did indeed record this episode before we watched the Oscars. So we're not going to reference the slap. But check this out. Steve actually predicts the way that Game of Thrones ends. We're talking about the donkey and honeycomb joke that Tyrion repeatedly tells. And Steve, in jest, suggests that that's how they will end the entire series. Starting that joke and not finishing it, I promise you, he has not seen the end of the series yet. I, of course, do my best to deflect by making some joke about a post credit scene that no one's seen. But listen carefully, because Steve absolutely prophesies how the entire series is going to end. Here is comic Steve Osborne. So, Steve, I think we have... Now a kinder, gentler hound. Is that is that what I'm saying? It sure seems like it. He says in the old days, he would have killed everyone there just so he can kill three people. But he settled for two people. Yeah, I mean, that is... I, I mean, I, talk about growth. I mean, being a progressive myself, it's really nice to see somebody go through a journey and, uh, and come out on the other side um, just woke. Yeah, this is... <laughs> This is what redemption looks like for the hound, I think. Yeah. <laughs> this guy, this first guy the hound kills with the axe, he's not having a good day. No, 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 no. Mad. The old wow. finger in the bum trick. Well, bum, and the thing, <laughs> you, you almost get a sense. It was like this moment where he was just like, oh, man, finger up my butthole. I just wish I would. I feel like I, I could die. And then also he's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Finger of the bum gag, followed by axe to the throat. Classic gag, too. I mean, this one, Taylor's oldest time. <laughs> like every family reunion, you're like, oh, maybe they are just going to show me how to kiss. Oh, you! <laughs> I think that's why they invented belts. Look, if ever an older grizzly guy tells you that he's going to give you a master class... <laughs> And kissing. I don't trust it, man. I mean, I don't know about you. Well, I kind of want like a prequel of just that conversation. Like, how did they get there? Like, hey, guys, you know, we're you're a haggard bunch. Um, what can you teach me in the ways of wooing women? <laughs> Feel free. Take, and you know take what? Take your time. I'm a, got visual, all I'm a visual learner, just to be clear. Uh, I I like to, like, if we could do any kind of role-playing, that'd be great. I'm open for everything. <laughs> you guys seem like the kind of guys that would, would give me, would be real straight shooters in the art of love. I'm just a sponge. Just tell me <laughs> everything you know. <laughs> uh, so that guy's not having a great day. And... No. And the other guy, I mean, the other guy, you think, I haven't known you long, but I, I, I'm i pretty sure you deserve to die. <laughs> right. Because yeah. you just violated this younger it, fellow. This it was you. the immediate smelling of the finger. Man. So, you know, I don't condone violence, but man, that guy just seemed like he deserved to die. So. <laughs> yeah, I give it. I give you that. So, 
I mean, that was sort of the logical payback to the way the last episode ended, right? Right. The Hound grabs an axe. It's pretty sure. You, I mean, you're pretty sure as a viewer what is going to happen next. Right. Yeah. You don't get the sense that he's going to be like, you know what? Uh, I'm going to honor. I'm going to honor the pacifist movement. He's not going to like kneel before anyone and say, my axe is yours. <laughs> uh, dismemberment count. Two beheadings. In fact, the hound beheads that guy with an axe, right? Mm-hmm. And the mountain. So both Kligang brothers get in on the business, right? So Yeah, which I liked. I like to see that sort of the this little parallel narrative that I still think feels like it's coming to some sort of a showdown. But it's so Well, hard. yeah, we talked about that. We'll get to that in a little bit. But the Hound... All right, so the Hound is, <laughs> has flirted with pacifism as much as the Hound can. <laughs> yeah, in the sense that he, he heard about it. He, t- <laughs> <laughs> he took a break from murdering people, and he just murdered some firewood for a couple yeah. days. And then it was back to murdering people. Uh, so the faith is trying to get Cersei back in the dungeon. Right. Good luck with that. Yeah, that didn't work out too well. So she, you know, she just kind of, I choose violence. That was a very, I think that was maybe my favorite line from Cersei this entire series. I choose violence. Yeah, that's pretty good. Just very subdued. Just, you know, she's, she's totally collected. She's comfortable in her own skin. There's and a, she knows what she's saying is completely murderous. This uh, this version of Cersei is interesting, right? Because Cersei's never been one to lack confidence, but this is a different. Type. This is a this is a uh, Cersei on a mission. This is probably the I get you know for lack of a better comparison. This is kind of what I maybe would have imagined the um, Lady Stoneheart. Mm-hmm. to be like so this is almost because well, yeah good good so I'm this is that. this is this is post post atonement walk mm-hmm. um and so her she doesn't i mean this is this is less of uh cersei um focused on her children and family name and legacy this is more this feels a little more vengeful like her just her well on her, top of that she knows her limitations i mean it's like she she knows that she can't wield all of the power she has before. So she's a little bit more self-aware, I think. Right. And then she has one move now, right? Like, I mean, she used to have options. Mm-hmm. She doesn't, I mean, she's even prior to her realizing, you know, when Tommen's big reveal or whatever, I mean, she doesn't, she, she's already sort of lost control of that, like motherly control of the king. Yeah. Uh, Jamie's no longer a secret weapon. Um, who is you know kind of bound by love and honor and with great ability she's made no allies anymore really the only allies that she seems to have is uh a a mad scientist and his creation which i think is absolutely fascinating i it's 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 a low-key one of my favorite subplots well um, she's a little bit of a mad scientist herself i mean i feel like i think that she and kyburn kind of understand each other the monster that Cersei's creating is kind of herself and King's Landing. Like King's Landing is her Frankenstein's monster. Well, and this is what I I, I mentioned this last night as we're watching it 
or I said to her, I paused it and I said, what a fascinating scene that she uses Kyburn's uh, creation to help defeat her creation. Yeah, she made she right. made the monster of this yeah. uh, of the high sparrow and, and and this cult following, and so and so the the it's 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 a it's managing monsters at this point. Yeah, no, I like I like that a lot, and I think she's more interesting than she was before. But here's the thing about let's go ahead and go to Tommen's big reveal. So last we talked when the Hound is resurrected, your immediate thought was. Well, now we have both Clegane brothers resurrected. This is clearly going to result in some kind of showdown. Hound's the trial, getting his face. The trial by combat seems yeah. like a logical yeah, it's way a lock. for this to, to manifest itself. Yeah, yeah. you're going to put money on it. At the end of last episode, you're kind of putting money on some kind of trial by combat. Because it's like because you get that sense of why why bring back the hound right like exactly. that. So you, you start thinking of it from from that. Mm-hmm. end right which is well to what is how does this advantageous to to the plot now to be clear several episodes ago i i, I had challenged the idea that she could use trial by combat mm-hmm. and uh and and you uh you, you kept me off the scent on that one i think i did and i think i think that the conversation was something like would the faith of the seven resort to that trial by combat and my response was well there's this kind of this theological impetus behind the right. tradition in the first place. Um, so, I mean, when Tommen reveals that he has outlawed trial by combat, to me, that was as shocking as anything. I mean, I shouldn't say it's as shocking as like Ned's beheading or whatever, but it really kind of disoriented me. It, it was sort of like, yeah, but I was sure that I was going to get to see the mountain fight the hound. Right, right, right. How can he do this? This is kind of it, it. Really, was a curveball that I wasn't expecting, and really effective political entry. And you know what, Steve? There are like just a few things that I tune in for for Game of. Th- what do I want to see in a classic Game of Thrones episode? I want to see some good political intrigue that makes sense, but I don't see coming. Right, and that right. is really hard to do. Makes sense with what came before. But also subverts my expectations that, I mean, that's a tightrope. And then I like to see badass dudes doing badass things. And I got, <laughs> yeah, I, I got to, I got to see a couple of my favorite things. I, I like the intrigue of this episode quite a bit. Yeah. So Tommen reveals that trial by combat is no longer a thing. He is so worn down, this, this kid. It's so weird. It's like she couldn't control. Joffrey because he was a psychopath, right? Right. Like Joffrey just wants blood and he he wants he wants it in the most grotesque way possible. Yeah, I mean Joffrey is is not he's not inheriting uh Wonka's chocolate factory. <laughs> no, absolutely not. In fact, he may be one of the first kids that drowns in the chocolate river. Right. <laughs> Tommen she can't control Tommen because Tommen's gotten too religious. Well, yeah, and people have done a good job of like there was right out the gate, right? I mean, we we talked about this too. Is, is Tywin is at his side immediately? Yeah, right, right. And and planting seeds of you want good counsel, right? And um, Marjorie has done a good job of kind of the the leave and cleave notion. 
Well, Marjorie's um, brilliance is that she took Cersei's monster and then used that monster to turn Tommen against his mother, right? Right. Yeah, and so that so so by by doing this and sort of appealing to the hey, aren't you gonna, don't you want to be your own your own type of king, you know, mama's boy type like kind of kind of going like there's elements of that kind of throughout his journey mm-hmm. so he's been trying to kind of separate from the mom so he she's been losing him for a while but he's also had this notion uh, thanks to tywin that it's good to have counsel and that it's mm-hmm. not uh, and whereas whereas joffrey was you know it, he didn't he didn't he thought that was weak yeah joffrey just it, he just thought well i'm king i'll do what i want right and so so tommen is like he's just this reluctant you know he, he's still going to be pushed around by somebody but now he, he's doing it under the illusion of like wise counsel you know what it's weird it's one of these situations where just on the surface of it Tommen is a much better person than Cersei is right right I, mean, I don't think there's any question that like if you wanted someone to babysit your kids it'd probably be Tommen not Cersei right And and yet there's something about Tommen's, his vulnerability and his sort of gullibility that makes him almost like a, almost an unethical ruler. Right. Yeah. Because because there there is no. He doesn't have any sense or wisdom to understand who around him is offering him good advice or bad advice. And so he may be just as chaotic as Joffrey was. Right, because he there is no he he is he's a prisoner of the moment in a way like Joffrey was a prisoner of the moment to his own whims, he is a prisoner of the moment to what with the latest bit of uh whatever whatever information comes his way, and and in a sense you can say that this is kind of the monsters that that Cersei created as well, the way that she raised Joffrey sort of set him up. We saw some of those early um episodes where you know she was just kind of always coaching him how to be king and it was just sort of mm-hmm. and and then now you have Tommen who was just sort of you know he's he's the he, he was kind of the Ricky Walnuts of of the uh, <laughs> of her family right like That's hey, right. yeah he exists I but think i mean Cersei always thought okay i've got to i've got to teach joffrey to be leviathan and I need Tommen to be like a little pussy cat because, because that comforts her. Yeah, that comforts her. It's it's like she's like this. If to- as long as I can keep Tommen pure of the world, then I can kind of return to Tommen and be motherly when I want to be motherly. Exactly. Yeah, because that's you know I mean that's been a theme with her a lot is that like the love for her children is a big deal and like he grounds her and he and so she keeps him sort of this non-entity mm-hmm. who who is reliant on the mother um and you know not terribly unlike robin um different in in many ways and that i can actually look at tommen um but uh but the idea being that you know like yeah you 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 serve a purpose to keep me to keep me motherly to keep me whole when mm-hmm. all else fails you make me feel good right and it's interesting because like we, we have this conversation and that kind of comes up uh with the uh the jamie edmure um back and forth oh yeah that was great a lot of callbacks in this episode he uh Jamie says, you know, the things I do for love or whatever. I think that's 
almost the exact line he said when he pushed Bran out the window. Yeah. And sort of this reversal of fortunes where in the books, Jamie spent a lot of time in jail at River Run. You kind of got the sense in the show that he was mostly Rob's prisoner kind of just along the road or whatever. Right. But in either case, like, you know, he's been a captor a lot or been a captive a lot. And I honestly didn't see that little play go- coming either that where he d- he's able to basically conquer River Run without killing anyone. Yeah. That sort of Tyrion level clever. Right. Which I was happy to see from, I mean, we've talked about how Jamie's become a little bit of a bummer as of late. Yeah. But, you know, I did get a little of the old Jamie vibe in that conversation with that. Well, what a, it was a great Jamie episode in the regards. That, so, so we, we see him back with Brienne and, and we, I think we all tend to soften when yeah, those yeah. two get together. Right. And, and there is a great moment where, you know, basically she's, you know, it's kind of like heat where Pacino and De Niro, like, Hey, there's a flip side of this coin. If I see you, <laughs> you know, I will not hesitate. Not for one second. They, and, they both respect one another and they realize that they're probably going to find each other on opposite ends of a battlefield at some point. Right. And, and what I liked about that. So then his next sequence we see is he goes to Edmure and he becomes incredibly uh candid yeah he admit he admits his incestual relationship and he does it to and so you assume he's going to kill edmir because it's like look i'm not gonna have this information just out there but he does it and it's like and 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 i view that as and then of course we 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 finish off jamie uh you know, kind of saluting Brienne. And I think that's, to me, that's what I took out of it, is that when Brienne shows up on the scene, it complicates Jamie dramatically. Jamie's always different when he's outside of King's Landing and uh-huh. especially away from Cersei. Yeah, um, that's right. And and, and, and Brienne brings, brings something out of him. Right? Well, Brienne brings something out of him. Brienne brings that complication. Brienne brings uh, an honor and a nobility. And, you know, I don't doubt for one second a certain amount of sexual tension that he doesn't know what to do with because he is 100% on paper committed to Cersei. So mm-hmm. he goes into this monologue about something that like, because it's almost as if he's con- reconvincing himself, you know, so he, he, he runs into Brienne and, mm-hmm. and that messes him up. So he goes in there and he basically has to sort of profess his love. It, I didn't get the sense for anything other than he had to do that for himself because Brienne just just messes his mojo up. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I hadn't thought about it that way. The way that I took it was he needs to convince Edmure that he's authentic. Sure. Because Edmure just thinks he's a moral monster. And he can't, you know, can't yeah, no, nothing cures that like admitting incest. <laughs> yeah, I think what he wants to do with Edmure is he wants to say, yeah, I am. I'm every bit of the monster you think I am. And because of that, it's because of my monstrosity that you better take this deal that I'm offering you because I absolutely will huck your baby boy over the wall of River Run. Right. Uh, because I would do anything to get back to Cersei. And I think, I, I mean, that's the, I mean, it could be both, but the way I took it was he wants to reveal something vulnerable about himself to Edmure 
so that Edmure believes that he will do anything to get back to Cersei. See, and I look at it, yes, I, I, I can get on board with that, but I also look at it as he he didn't have to do that. He did, he does this tactic with Edmure because mm. ultimately he does not want to fight Brienne. And yeah, so if yeah. he can't, if, if she can't, if she can't, he knew at this point she'd failed in her mission. So he's like, how can I still, how can I make that work? So I think he creates a scenario where he, he comes up with a plan that essentially is, is a follow-up to Brienne's plan because they're trying, she's trying to avoid that conflict because as, as he's saying, I'm in love with Cersei, I think there's also this element of, but there is another. So that's how I read all that. And I, that's why I was just like, absolutely, uh, um, taken by it. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that. It helps me like it a little, even a, a little bit more now, just to fill you in, in the book, like the, the way that this works out chronologically is different in the books. What happens is Cersei, as soon as Cersei, um, sends Jamie out, that's when she goes to jail. So Jamie is out trying to like overtake River Run. And that's and that is when Cersei lands herself in the in the sort of Septon's prison cell, high school okay. prison cell. And she sends word to Jamie. She sends a letter to Jamie, help, come back. I need you. I love you. I need your help. And he's kind of done with Cersei. Whoa. And so he's like, no, I'm not going. I'm done. I'm done with Cersei and her craziness. So he's kind of out, out about, you know, in the Riverlands or whatever. And when Brienne comes to town, she lies to Jamie and convinces him that she's found one of the two star, star girls, either Sansa or Arya. And so he rides off with her. And presumably to go meet Lady Stoneheart because Lady Stoneheart is going to kill Jamie. So talk about a difference between the books and the show on this point. Right, right. But I, I did. So I, I was expecting, honestly, at this point in the show, I was expecting they're going to bring Catelyn back. And oh, wow. and it's going to, you know, the shit's going to go down. Uh, so the way that this ended was, I mean... It was it was fascinating and I unexpected for sure. Um, so, but I, I like I like the way you're reading that. It helps. Yeah, and it made it it just made it richer because even if you're not like pro Jamie, at least you can you could ride this conflict. Oh, this Jamie is so much better than the Jamie that we've oh yeah seen oh, yeah. previously. So I'm glad we need, to have we needed this that. guy back. Yeah, and that's why when I and again maybe I was reading, you know, doing a different close reading on the on the dynamic, but that's what I took out of it, and I just felt and it brought back it just that's the kind of stuff that felt like early, not early, but like when Game of Thrones is at its peak, it does those mm-hmm. things with the characters, right? Like we talk about like the badassery, we like all that, but I do like when when it really digs into these psyches a little bit and it yeah, just adds, yeah. adds that level of richness. So even if it doesn't necessarily resolve, it just, it shows why they keep going on. Right. Whereas the hound is just motivated by hate, which I think is also, I think it's a little bit true. And I also think that he sells it short as well. I think there's more to the hound than all this. 
Yeah, yeah. We have the uh, reunion of Braun and Pod. Right. That's... Which I just, I mean, I mean, those two have been through some some stuff together, and I think Braun has some genuine affection for for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I, I just, I laughed more than I should have when he <laughs> when he grabs when his penis. <laughs> well, no, I mean. Sure. I mean, he says he's got a, what, a magic... A magic, magic cock. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but when he slaps his slaps his face and... Yeah. Every, everyone wants to hit a squire. <laughs> yeah. Less that was great. No, one. those are all one... Uh, yeah. It, and and, and it, it felt super authentic. That's yeah. what I thought was interesting about it. Is I that think it, sometimes these reunions can kind of go stale, like, really quick. But that well, they, reunion, yeah, for some they, reason, it's not like I was itching for it like man i really like to see pod and Braun back together right but once i got it i thought i thought man those were the good old days exactly no it really and then and i what it i think what it does is it's a it's a it's a beautiful moment that brings you back to man we've been on a hell of a journey here yeah i mean okay. last time these guys were like hanging i mean i mean we're talking Tyrion's <laughs> in king's landing and you know there's all these different elements of that and you're like wait a minute He's with this. That's right. He's with Jamie. And how did man? If you would like, you, you start to map out where you've been, and you go, "This is we've covered a lot of ground in this period of time." <laughs> Steve, you know how I love ships, right? You, you you do. You're a big ship guy. Can I just? I'm just gonna put in my dissenting opinion on the use of fiery cannonballs from trebuchets. When you're on the deck of a wooden ship, yeah, no, that's well, you are, I guess, playing with fire. Yeah, I don't like with that. I don't like the possibility that that would do to the ship. Like, I'm not so I'm not as concerned about marine at that point. I'm just thinking that's just a perfectly good ship that you're you're going to burn down. You're putting it in harm's way. I don't like it, man. So Tyrion has Tyrion has a great Breakfast Club moment. I, you know what? I thought that Missandei's joke wasn't so bad. No, it's fine. I, I mean, for a first joke, and then Grey Heather Worm laughed. Heather, Heather thought it was great. And then Grey, Grey Worm's a bit of an alt comic. I get it. I think Grey Worm, all of a sudden, he's like this comedy critic. <laughs> this is typical. Just so you know, I'll give you a little bit of inside uh, baseball in the stand-up comedy world. Um, you get, I run into these open micers, you know, they do one, two open mics or they invite like friends and family who tell them they're great. And the next thing you know, these guys know everything there is about comedy. <laughs> they will tell you, you know, how it's done. They'll give you notes and tips. And you're like, dude, you suck. <laughs> you had five mediocre minutes at best, only mediocre because people laughed because you brought them. That's it. And now you've changed your your Facebook profile to comedian. You're creating a YouTube page. Yeah, that's Grey Worm. Grey Worm that is like, Grey Worm. Grey Worm's like, I have a new joke. I, I lied. And you're like, okay. <laughs> Saddle down. And he's getting a lot of love from Sandy. For that. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what I'm talking about. You bring your friends to your open mic. 
<laughs> They're so proud of you that they don't even realize that what you just said was garbage. Yeah, so Tyrion just finally breaking through with these two. Yeah, but we don't know what happens when you get to the brothel <laughs> with this joke, with right? With a donkey I mean, and a honeycomb. Donkey and a honeycomb. I have so many questions. Well, this is kind of your wheelhouse. What what would happen? Well, the payoff has to be somehow sex with the donkey. Does it? Because that's I... what I'm expecting. So if you if you want to, so you think it flips that there's it's a honeycomb thing. <laughs> The donkey and the innkeep just have a delightful time eating honeycomb together. Because <laughs> that's what I'm not expecting out of that. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I guess. Well, well yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm. I mean, now understanding why people are so disappointed with uh, the ending of the show is they probably never. That's the whole thing is everything's great, but then they're like, and what about? The, and then like he starts to sell the joke again, and then it's over. There's actually a post credit scene that people have not seen. That involves Tyrion, a donkey, and a honeycomb. <laughs> <laughs> it's just this flashback episode. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I thought Miss Andy's joke was, for a first joke, not bad. Not bad, not bad. All right. Well, I like that they were drinking wine. Everything, everything about that. Like the, the, He uses the uh, dandruff shampoo commercial uh, line. That's how you know it's working. Love that. We talked about the genuine affection. Um, between characters before, I I really did get the sense that Tyrion was sad to see Varys go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, was, I think I think they've thing. always kind of respected each other and not quite trusted each other. But I kind of feel like I really do believe that they they may be each other's only friend at this point. When you look at friendships throughout. Um... Westeros, right? I mean, yeah. there's not a ton that aren't baked in of some sort of convenience. Yeah, uh, but yeah. but I, if you look at friendships, Tyrion is the center of most of most authentic friendships. Tell me more about that. Uh, pa- Podrick is more than a squire with with um, with Tyrion, right? Like, and, and yeah, Bronn, sure. Bronn yeah. is more than a, a, a friend, right? Uh, you know, or is more than just a sellsword. They're 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 friends. Um, yeah, yeah. You look at uh, you look at Varys, right? And I think that that's Jamie is more than a brother. He's sort of yeah, or he's the most brotherly in the sense of what we would consider, right? Like brother, like you know, you don't like com- compare that to most other of the most of the other brother yeah. situations, right? Sure. Uh, um, you know, like I think Sam and Jon Snow are probably cl- like another close friendship that you could compare, but there's still there's still a distance, right? I mean, they're one, you know. Uh, Sam looks up to John in such a way, and John. Oh, kinda... it's a Frodo Samwell. Really yeah, I mean, it definitely sure. feels like it's it's a friendship, but there is a hierarchy in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas Tyrion, being a Lannister, but also being uh, you know a, a dwarf, sort of cancels it out, so he can be with some of the lower uh, folk and and not draw those same class distinctions as much. Yeah, so you're right. I think Tyrion, I mean, it says a lot for what humor will do for friendship because there's a certain intimacy that is involved with sharing laughs together. But I think that, like, for instance, even with Pod and Braun, they're friends because Tyrion brought them together. Exactly. And that, and that's kind of the, the gravity of, of the gravitational pull of friendship. 
um, mm-hmm. and the influence and like the ability to show that friendship matters. And then look at the, look, I mean, if you look at Jamie and, and Braun, I don't know that they would be friends necessarily, but their relationship was not, there was a, there was a certain casualness to it um, yeah. that, that you don't see with other relationships. And again, it's that, that Tyrion connects people in a, in a pretty unique way. Well, and I think, you know, look any further than what, what's, you know, the, the Miss Sandy and, and Grey Worm and him like joke fest uh, that will go a long way. And I think we see it because his little plan of the, you know, I don't exactly know how it's going to manifest itself, but like he had this, this deal with the masters that they weren't crazy about initially, mm-hmm. obviously, um, but they sort of supported it. And then now they have this moment, like where we're seeing them sort of become friendly. We don't know if they're going to become friends, but, but that might help, you know, down the road. I mean, especially if they're not going to see eye to eye on things. I mean, there's something to be said for winning people over. Right. Um, we also find out that Arya would like to sail west of Westeros. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting one, right? Because like, nobody knows what's out there. Well, in addition to that, I think that this is the first time where we've had any glimpse of Arya that isn't sort of tied to... Revenge. Yeah, revenge or survival. You know, how do I just get past this one... like? She's never really had a moment where, like, she shared, like, hey, I've always, you know what? You know what I've always wanted to do? There's nothing like that. And right. I kind of feel like maybe I'm missing that a little bit in her character. I mean, I guess she's always wanted to become a great swordsman or something. Well, but here's, here's your perfect, I mean, here's your situation, right? You've got, uh, you've got Arya, who, when we get on the scene with Arya... She's young, and we we're like this is when you would normally get her. Like, what are her daydreams and her fantasies, and what does she want to be? And and uh, oh, I want to be this, I want to be that. And then all of a sudden, her life just spirals into survival and hell bent on revenge to the point where she never has a moment. It seems right. like so. So it's not only that we don't get those moments. It's like, is she afforded these moments? I mean, she has. <laughs> she's gone through a lot. She hasn't really had the chance to go and and okay, take a breath. What Mm -hmm. before all this happened, what did I want to do? And that's why I think it's such an important episode that we get this sort of reveal, right? Like she's she's given an opportunity to to be somebody else, but in kind of a a more fun way. I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe she has to play Arya Stark in one of these uh, (laughs) these plays. Uh, Very meta, pretty great. Uh, But then, uh, but so so she has this moment with someone where it's like this this moment of connectivity that has nothing like she's not here to train you to be a fighter. She's not here to help you get to where you need to go to kill somebody or even to try to return back and hit reset. Mm-hmm. It's a whole new thing. And, and that becomes immediately attractive because you had just been stabbed in the stomach. You've been hit a lot with a stick. Uh, you were blind for a while. And, um, and now you have someone who kind of is like, Hey, I think you'd also be good at this fun thing. And yeah. then, and then there's a youthfulness that probably gets well, gets and a kind of a motherly quality, right, too, right? Right. So it's like, oh wow, this I never even thought. Like, I think this is typical, right? You get a certain age, you think you want to be an astronaut, but then you take, uh, you know, you, you take a creative writing class, and you're like, well, maybe I want to write, you know, whatever that might be. And so she has that for a second, um, for a second, <laughs> and then and her, then term- her the- and then this motherly figure dies which of course is going to happen yeah pretty bad um, 
and uh, and then she continues her Terminator 2 narrative. We've already seen her with, uh, you know, what is the T-800 uh, uh, with, uh, with the Hound, you know, that moment. And then now she's being chased by the T-1000. I mean, that whole sequence was so Terminator 2. I wrote down T-2 as nice. I was watching it. Well, when the, when the wave I, comes out. At the out, same exact time. At the same exact time, we go, Terminator 2. <laughs> Just at the same exact time. <laughs> She comes out of that street level door and just scans the street. Yeah. And she just has that face. It, it, it was perfect Terminator 2 and the fact that she can kind of change faces. Well, yeah. and then she does the run, right? And then she, yeah, exactly. She does the on Robert Patrick T2 run, uh, which, you know, which took me like, I'm like, ah, it's Terminator 2. And then I'm also like, ah, maybe I should watch Terminator 2 again. <laughs> Yeah, so that that was great, and then of course it. Le- All right, let's talk about the stab wound. I mean, how long has she been sleeping there under can't the influence of Milk of the Poppy, mending? Can't be that long, right? Because I was thinking, there's no way you're gonna jump out of a second story window, right? With your guts all torn up. So, I mean, there's part of that. Eventually, what they do is, when she's, like, rolling down the steps, her stomach starts bleeding again. Yeah. But, which, of course, I'm glad that they did that, because otherwise... Because you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> but I was still a little bit like, wait a minute. Yeah. No, I'd that's still fair. still be like, eh, you know, come on. You were pincushion, and the person who stabbed you knows a lot about stabbing. Yeah. So I was t- I, for me, that was a little bit, uh, yeah, I wasn't sure quite quite what to do with that. Yeah, I know. I mean, everything else has been so, so based in reality that it's hard to <laughs> hard to accept that. She she cuts the face off the waif. Yeah, she does, and hangs it up. That is some Hannibal Lecter stuff, man. Man, that is that is such a such a move of badassery, too, right? Talk about. <laughs> I mean, we talked a little bit about like the, the hound. Getting just a just a little bit better, yeah. And at this point, it's like no, Arya is like full Hannibal Lecter at this point. Well, and it's funny because like you talk about like the problem that you have with the with the wound, and I mean, yeah, I definitely had that moment, like, huh, okay. But then there's this other element of like, it's the end of that. Where she's like, I'm Arya Stark, and he's like, all right. I mean, you you cut the face off my little apprentice, and uh, I mean, I did try to kill you, or at least I I gave permission but uh it was a good it was a good ride it's like i tip my little cap to you that was yeah you know, that's impressive and uh you can go on your merry way now, i mean i made you blind for a minute um <laughs> but it helped out right all right so we good well all right now let's let's talk turkey here all right yeah no i think it's so i don't want to i don't want to be an apologist but i will say that jackin's all about uh, evening the name ledgers in the book of death or whatever mm-hmm so he's at, he's upset with Arya because she doesn't kill that actress, but the actress is now dead, oh. and uh, so the, the many faced god wants a death, and it's supposed to be Arya, but instead, it's this waif girl, and so the many faced god got the number of deaths he wanted in the first place, and that kind of is has been Jack and Sing all along, like. Yeah, you saved my life, but you robbed a, a life from the god. And so we have to figure out who else to kill. 
And if that really is kind of the rules of the road for the faceless men, then the number of murders have been satisfied. Okay, but then there was this, he's invested a lot of time and energy into into her with the intent of turning her into known. And then there seemed to be the sense of if she doesn't accept it, well, then that's going to be bad news for her. And then she's like, he's been I trying don't. to kick her out the door the whole time. He's like, no, you're still Arya. No, you're still Arya. You've got a yeah. lot of st- learning to do. And you probably aren't going to be a faceless man because you don't have what it takes. <laughs> so then it just becomes, and so in your, in your, uh, take on this is that there's just this okay well at least you know who you are you know what? Yeah, I don't closure. know honestly I don't know <laughs> it I does mean... feel, feel like well, okay so what now we went through all that for what now I mean I'm okay with her going through the journey but it just seems like for it to end like that like mm. you could have done that I mean I guess you it's it is a it's a great moment um it's a great scene you know you couldn't just be enough where he looks and he sees the face you need her to to just have that definitive i'm Arya stark or i guess you know we go we, we had this conversation about exposition when you need it when you don't like maybe you don't need her to say that maybe you know as an audience member you get the idea that like yeah mm-hmm. she's she's Arya stark we just saw her become Arya stark and, and fully pre, you know fully embraced it um i don't need her to say it right like so you know what i maybe, thought i was watching that scene and i thought I honestly, the way that I remember that scene was that she kills him in the end. Oh, really? And I was conflating that with, I think, the the end of last season where she kills some guy who's wearing a Jack and Hagar mask. Mm. And then, like, she takes off, like, four or five different masks off the guy. Right, right, right. on the ground. For some reason, in my head, I pushed those memories together and I thought, oh, this is where she kills him. And then she says, I'm Arya Stark, and I'm going home, and he just kind of nods. <laughs> Isn't she supposed to kill him? Interesting. So I, 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 yeah, I was a little bit, I shouldn't say disappointed, because, I, I mean, I'm glad, I, I mean, there's a part of me that feels like I'm glad she didn't kill him. Yeah. But I was expecting it. All right, so talking about friendship. It was complicated, but I did get the sense that Ari and the Hound got to be close in a certain way, right? Right. So the question is that we had last episode was, okay, so the Hound is resurrected. You know, why? Why is the Hound resurrected? Right. And now Arya is out of her situation. And Arya has stated her intent to go home, right? Right. And if they cross paths... Um, that could also create now you it could create a situation where the hound is reunited with let's say they all get home and or she gets home and Sansa's there now there's another person that he kind of has a history of protecting yeah so I think that there is I mean you're you were right when you said before that both Arya and Sansa are in a situations where they could use a little bit of muscle it's so the hound is alive, but at the end of this scene, it kind of feels like, is he going to like fall in with Thoros and mm-hmm. Beric? Cause he really doesn't have anywhere to go. Right. You know, where, where, where's he possibly going to go? So, I mean, those two may be on a collision course and that'll be, that'll all be pretty interesting when, if, if, and when that happens. But I kind of feel like I'm still not sure what she'll do. Like, 
Is right. He on, is he on her list or or not? Because at the end of this episode, I don't know if she's a vengeance monster or or something else. Right. So that's the question, right? Is she? Yeah. And that that's I think the big the big cliffhanger with her character in that that sense is like. So what does that mean to you if you're Arya Stark? Does that mean Arya Stark um, pre all this? Is that Arya Stark? pre just the uh faceless uh man um mission so back to the list um or have enough people died on this list Mm -hmm. you know have you now that you've killed one of them yourself is that like is that something you want to do more of Mm -hmm. is that something you now want to do less of i mean then that so that that makes that kind of a compelling um you know journey too because it's like well what what are we getting here what does that mean to be Arya stark now um, Danny's back and, oh, yeah. and she makes a, you know, dramatic entrance, you know, she's back just in time for a battle. Right. And right. so you imagine Dothraki can't be far behind. Right. And, uh, she's got new dragon powers. Yeah. So big, big showdown on the horizon. Right. So that's, so that's great. Brienne and Potter on their way out. Arya's Arya again, whatever that means. Uh, Cersei's in trouble. Um, but mm. there is that one reveal that I'm just like, what? That Kyburn says the rumors are true and much, much more. So, yeah. So it looks like, well, Cersei's back is against the wall. Um, Kyburn, Kyburn has, a, has a silver lining. Kyburn has been pretty effective so far. Kyburn has been able to save uh, Jamie's arm or more, more, most of his arm, right? Mm-hmm. He's able to resurrect the mountain and create a person of monstrous strength. He's been able to take over Varys's uh, spy network, right? With which candy. really all you need is candy, I suppose. <laughs> It's like you thought you really thought Barris was super smart all these years. He's just just as creepy as you thought. <laughs> you know, well, the he, sex, he, the he sexless knows. bald guy with candy. <laughs> he knows a few candy makers. And I if, think we all you know... <laughs> we've all met Varys or at least someone that we're like, hmm, is that one house you don't trick or treat at because you could trick or treat any time of the year. I don't know if you saw this at the end, but when Varys is sailing off, uh, the ship he's on looks just like a big white van without windows. <laughs> nice. Uh, like I have to go on this ship. And he's holding a puppy. He's holding a puppy. It's like, before I go, I have to register for something. <laughs> He's knocking on all the doors of <laughs> King's Landing. For this week's Bird's Eye View, just a note. I'm really vexed by this question about the climax to A Game of Thrones. I've gotten several emails, and I thought I had my mind made up. But these emails have got me rethinking my position on this. So I decided to... Email Elio Garcia and ask him to email George. So let's see if jolly old Gurm replies. I can't promise that he will, but I feel optimistic about it. George, where's the climax to this book? And that is all for this week. <laughs> <laughs>